you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. LAist Studios. Hi, everyone. This is Retake. Every week, we offer a critical and informed perspective on what's happening in entertainment, and we also highlight the work of innovative artists. I'm your host, John Horn. On this week's episode, a preview of this year's Emmy Awards. They air on Monday, not Sunday, because for NBC, Sunday Night Football is more important than the Emmys. Also, we have a taste of my conversations with some of the actors and filmmakers who premiered their work at the Telluride Film Festival this past weekend in Colorado, including writer-director Sarah Polly, who has a new drama called Women Talking. My mantra that I said to myself every single morning before going to set was, Make it easy, get out of the way, help where you can. Also, Harry Turner, he is the subject of an emotionally wrenching documentary called Wildcat. I was this lost soul and I went to the jungle and these kittens kind of like made me strong again and I was trying to make them strong. And Emma Corrin, star of the latest film adaptation of the often banned B.H. Lawrence novel, Lady Chatterley's Lover. It's very modern, I think it's, I think, my opinion is if this book came out now, people would be talking about it. Plus, a documentary about a robot that had Telluride audiences in tears. That's up first. The documentary Good Night Oppie is about the Mars rover Opportunity. Oppie being short for Opportunity. It was only supposed to survive for 90 days on the Red Planet, but it ended up working for 15 years. In spending time with Oppie's designers, engineers, and scientists, the director of the film, Ryan White, came to see their relationship with the rover as if they were parents to this far-off child who happened to be a robot— White says that one of the biggest challenges in making this film was trying to decide which engineers and scientists would be featured in his documentary. Thousands of people worked on these robots, and so we knew we could never do justice to the entire team as far as representing those faces on screen. Um, What we did is... I've never, I I always find the writing credit really interesting in documentaries, um, and I've never, uh, I think since my first film, ever taken a writing credit on my docs, but this one we did because we wrote a screenplay for the film before we ever shot one frame of of film, and uh, the the way we wrote the screenplay is we pre-interviewed about 30 engineers and scientists who played major roles in the documentary. I didn't pre-interview them because I don't like to interview people twice. My producers, Jess and Grace, would do like five-hour Zoom conversations because this was at the height of COVID. And then we watched those 30 interviews. We created a screenplay off of it, but that's also how we cast the film was by by watching these 30 people. And I think in the end, I I think it's 12 uh, people we have in the film. And we wanted it to be very intergenerational. So I would imagine, you know, there's, there's people who built the robots from the beginning that had the idea. Steve Squires is our main character. I call him our Geppetto character. But there's also people in their 20s and 30s that are in the film that inherited this project in some way and played a major role. They also speak of spirit and opportunity as if they are not machines, that they are 
I won't call them sentient beings, but they are their relationship to them is very much like parent and child. And they talk about the robots, the rovers, whatever you want to call them, in that in those terms. And that doesn't feel like something that was created. It feels like that is how they saw their relationship to the rovers. Yeah, I mean, I think especially the parents that were involved in the mission saw, I mean, there were, we have a shot in our film of, of a picture of the robot on the refrigerator next to the other children's portraits. And so that's really how they saw them. And one, one thing that I always found so fascinating was the, the lifespan of the rovers was expected to be 90 days. But when they started surviving for years and years and years, the way the, the engineers describe it is that that emotional bond just kept getting stronger and stronger. They had expected, they were prepared for the worst, which was a, our baby is going to go up there and three months later we'll probably die because these, these rovers were solar powered and um, there's a lot of dust on Mars that prevents the sun from reaching the robots. And as they kept surviving and outlasting the odds, the, the emotional bond, the familial bond uh, between these humans and their baby on Mars just grew and grew and grew. That was Ryan White. He's the director of the documentary Good Night Oppie. The film comes out on November 4th. Now, another documentary that also premiered at Telluride. This is directed by Melissa Lesh and Trevor Beck Frost. It's called Wildcat. And it focuses on Harry Turner. He is a young British soldier who served in Afghanistan and is struggling with very bad depression and PTSD. And as part of his recovery, he travels to the jungles of Peru, and he ends up working with baby ocelots who have been orphaned by loggers. I got a chance to talk with Turner just as he was starting to hear people's reactions to the film in Telluride. It has been quite a, an eye-opening experience people coming up to me and telling me about either their child who has suffered with depression or either a friend who has committed suicide. Um, And then when they talk about the film and they say, you know, this could be very impactful to people who are struggling. I, I didn't start this documentary because I wanted to make a documentary about mental health. I was filming through the passion and love that I have for a wild cat that came into my care. And so therefore the, the, footage of me in the hammock and me chilling out with him and bottle feeding him and you know teaching him how to hunt and doing all these things it was just because I really really loved it it was it wasn't for the fact that I thought this was going to be shown to millions of people let alone the fact that I was going to be crying on screen let alone my the fact that my family were going to be involved and and so for me personally the people coming up to me and telling me you know stories about how beautiful they thought it was and how open I was and how uh, honest the film was um it, it's been it's been beautiful but also quite emotional at the same time because one in four people struggle with depression 22 veterans in the u.s commit suicide per day and so when you think about these these numbers and then you have these people coming up to you it makes you feel like i started off this project with just a camera and a cat and now i'm potentially changing people's lives I said this the other day, and you may think it's a pile of rubbish, but when I was explaining the film to other people, I said, it's a story about a soldier who is suffering from PTSD and other mental health problems who goes to the jungle to kind of get away from a lot of things. And while he's there, he starts caring for these baby ocelots who are basically these little kittens. And part of your job 
is to teach these adorable little kittens how to become hunters and killers. At the same time, you're teaching them that you are going from being a hunter and killer to trying to find out your interior kitten, I guess, this innocent thing. That was my read. Do you think there's validity to that, that, that these lines kind of intersect in that way? I think that everybody's going to go into the film and they're going to come out with something, whether it be positive or negative, um, whether it be um, something they can relate to, whether it be an interest or, or a passion that they you know, have, have been sparked by. And so I feel like going into this film, you should have an open mind. You know, for me personally, I agree with what you're saying. I think that, you know, I, I was this lost soul and I went to the jungle and these kittens kind of like made me strong again. And I was trying to make them strong. Nature is, is one of the best healers for me personally. And I feel that with nature, you can, um, you can get on with what you need to do. You know, you can, you can overcome boundaries and you can do great things as long as you kind of put yourself within nature and surrounded by things which are natural. Being surrounded by a, a concrete jungle is not healthy or natural. Um, and, and it's one of the main reasons why what I'm doing right now with trying to raise money so that I can buy land in Ecuador so that then I can not just protect and conserve and also potentially do some work with uh, other animals, but to also take people who are veterans or who are people who are struggling with mental health to the jungle so that they can feel how I felt back in, you know, 2014. And they can they can be in nature and they can be like, wow, I feel alive again. Because I think that what this film can bring to the world is that men can open up about their depression, men can open up about their mental health, and women, and anybody who wants to open up about it, they can. And they can find strength in nature because nature is the best healer there is on this planet. That was Harry Turner. He's the subject of the documentary Wildcat. The film will be available on Amazon Prime come December. Coming up after the break, two narrative features from Telluride, Women Talking and Lady Chatterley's Lover. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Sarah Polly started out in the entertainment industry as a child actor in Canada, and she went on to become a writer and a director. For her latest film called Women Talking, Polly adapted the 2018 Miriam Tay's novel of the same name. While the movie is a work of fiction, as is the novel, Tay's said she was reacting to a true story of women being sexually assaulted by men in a Mennonite community in Bolivia. 
The film avoids that denominational reference, but it's still painfully faithful to the impact that these assaults have on these women, who are blamed not only for causing them, but also told they won't get into heaven if they do something about it. Over the course of the movie, a number of women covering a wide age range try to decide what to do. Should they stay? Should they fight? Or should they leave? The ensemble cast includes Frances McDormand, Clara Foy, Jesse Buckley, and Rooney Mara. When I spoke with Sarah Pauly about women talking, she explained that she knew from the start that she would not depict the sexual assaults on screen. What was important to me was to capture that moment after an assault where your memory can't kind of imprint on anything, where nothing can be consigned to memory because everything is chaos. And that's the moment post-assault that is so problematic when you put a woman on a stand and ask her to recount her uh, her version of events in a sexual assault trial, because the memory is interrupted and destroyed by that kind of trauma. And so the details get wrong. And that person's obviously a liar because they're lying about some of the details. But in fact, what I wanted to capture was the chaos of that moment right after an assault where you're somewhere else. And to me, that's almost worse and more traumatic than the assault itself is like what happens to your brain when it tries to process that through its normal channels in that moment afterwards. So I knew that I needed to show a glimpse of the horror that these women were facing and processing without showing the assault. And for me, it was that moment when their memory could no longer hold on to anything just after an assault. I want to ask you about allyship because this is a movie that that I watch as a man and feel great shame about how men behave. Um, and it's not specific to anybody I know, but it's specific to men generally. I mean, there are a lot of bad men who have done a lot of bad things. And there's a character in this story named August who's played in the film by Ben Wishaw who feels to me like a very good example of an ally in terms of letting these women tell their story and record it, write it down. How would you define like what allyship looks like? And is Ben's character in a way an iteration of allyship? For me, it always was. Like that was the word I used from the beginning when I, you know, was adapting that character and reading it in the book is he's sort of a model of what an ally should look like, I think. And I think a lot of that is holding space, finding out how you can be useful, um, listening. And I think it's really, really hard. I think it's really, really hard how to know how to do it well. So I do think that it was very important to me that there be a male character in this film that was very, very good. And actually the only one we get to know and really see their face is very, very good. And I think the film at large for me is less about what we want to destroy and more about what we want to build. And I think that the the conversations about what we want to tear down are really important, but we have to make more important what are our imaginings of what our future could look like? What could it look like if boys weren't raised with these toxic, rigid ideas of what it means to be a man? What does a really great ally look like? What does a world that treats people of all genders, men, women, and, and all genders, well. Um, it's certainly not this one. I mean, I, I certainly don't think like capitalist patriarchy is working for most men either. Um, so I just feel like 
the breaking down of all of those things is important for everybody. And it was really important to me to show what's possible. Like Ona says that to August at one point, it's really good that you're here to, to remind us of what's possible because it's easy to forget. It is easy to forget. I mean, it's very easy to forget as a woman every day. It's very easy to forget that there are good men out there and there are also really great people of all genders raising really great boys right now, but they're just, they're not as loud and there needs to be a lot more of them. And, uh, but yeah, I just, what I love about August is his ability to listen and also to make himself practically useful without thinking he knows what the solution is and taking his lead. Useful and almost invisible. I mean, he, uh -huh. while you're talking about that, I'm thinking like, studio executives need to behave like August, that they have a skill, which is the ability to help somebody tell a story. And what August does is he gets out of the way uh -huh. as much as he can and lets mm. these women tell their yeah. story without him interfering. And I think that's, that's also a model for yeah. the creative process, that yeah. if you are really going to bring about equality and, and representation in Hollywood, it's about enabling the underrepresented people the women in this story are incredibly underrepresented in terms of how they're treated in this religious community. And August lets them have a voice. Mm -hmm. And that's, to me, one of the great takeaways of this film. Yes, it's a story about very strong women making a very difficult decision, but it's also about somebody helping them tell their story and have their debate and guide it so that they can come to the decision that they want to make mm -hmm. and not get in the way. Yeah. And it's funny when you were talking, I was remembering that my, my thing, my mantra that I said to myself every single morning before going to set was make it easy, get out of the way, help where you can. And I just said that to myself constantly. Cause it was like, how do you create the space for all of these people who are going to have to draw on some very traumatic moments in their own life, or even just trying to access these really, really difficult places? How do you create a, a space that's conducive to creativity and also doesn't hurt people. Um, and August certainly does that. He, he, he makes it easy, gets out of the way, but when he is asked to contribute, he does. Um, and it's not like he's not, yes. Does he feel shame? Yes. Does he feel embarrassment? Yes. But it's not paralyzing because I think the shame we can get into around this can be paralyzing. And then, then we're making, people who have been marginalized and this certainly goes for race i think like we can make people feel like they have to make us feel better constantly or like then they have to deal with all of our big feelings of shame and it's like yes it's appropriate to feel really awful about how men have behaved how white people have behaved absolutely but you need to like get your boots on the ground too and get moving and if like if that's paralyzing you making you useless so you're just sitting around talking about your shame all the time not helping anybody I'm not sure what that does so I think it's a finding that line between the reality of what history has been and accountability and figuring out how we help move those conversations forward and, and be of service and of use to the people who have actually suffered the most. That was Sarah Polly. She's the writer and director of Women Talking. The film arrives in theaters this December.
And now, another film that's centered on women, or rather one woman, and it's also based on a novel. This one is written by a man, but still is pretty feminist. The 1928 D.H. Lawrence novel, Lady Chatterley's Lover, has been adapted for the screen more than once. This latest version is directed by Laure de Clermont-Tonnerre. She's a French actress and director whose directorial debut, The Mustang, premiered at Sundance in 2019. Lady Chatterley's Lover stars Emma Corrin, who you may have seen play Princess Diana in the Netflix series The Crown. We talked about the book and the film's modern feel and about the journey of sexual freedom and pleasure that Emma's character, Constance, or Connie for short, goes through during the film. I think for her, she's never truly been able to access her own pleasure. Maybe she's never been with anyone who has really asked her what she wanted or or made her stay in her body. And I think especially with her relationship with Clifford is probably he makes her feel ashamed of wanting those things, as she says in the film. And so we talked about how when she first has sex with Mellors for the first few times, she's sort of not, she's there, she initiates it, she wants it, but during it, she's elsewhere. Right. And then that scene where they're both in the woods and finally he's like, look at me, engage with me we're in this together you don't have to disappear you're here and so like yeah there's a, there's like nuance within it which was nice to have that journey through those scenes it's one thing to write a novel about a character who has desire mm-hmm. and is very sex positive it's another thing to write a screenplay about that and it's quite another thing to perform that so in terms of creating I don't know if you want to call it safe place I don't that seems not quite the right word but a place where you can and your co-star can feel that they are being faithful to the story and they have what they need as performers and people to feel safe. How do you go about creating that? And what are the conversations that were important to you? I mean, it really was all the intimacy coordinator, um, Ita O'Brien, who worked on Normal People. And she has sort of been at the um, forefront of the movement of why intimacy coordinators are so essential. And this is my first time doing this amount of nudity and this this many sex scenes in one project if ever and um and I was so blown away by how much I relied on and felt so grateful for her involvement and I sort of the way I describe it is like it's almost as she approached it the same way as you would like a stunt you know you're gonna move here this person's hand is gonna be there exactly if you're choreographing a fight, you don't just say, guys, go for it, have a good time, hope you feel safe. No, you break it down bit by bit because you know that they're, more often than not, things would go wrong. And it's exactly the same thing. And everyone has their own relationship with their body and what they feel comfortable with or don't feel comfortable with. And it's really important to honor that and to recognize it and to talk about it. And yeah, she broke it down beat by beat and we sort of said, you know, I'm, you can touch me here and here, but absolutely not here. And once we had those things settled, then yeah, walk through it beat by beat. And so we all knew how all the scenes would go. So there were no surprises and everyone was comfortable. And also once those things were in place, it's such a blessing because you can have freedom within it. D.H. Lawrence's book is still banned because of, in some places, or it's just been recently unbanned. It's still banned in elementary schools in the States because of what it has to say about sex. And let's just say the United States is not alone in how it views sex compared to violence. And it's mm-hmm. something that is a huge issue in films, that movies that have very loving and accurate and nonviolent depictions of sex are labeled NC-17. They're not, mm-hmm. you're not allowed to see it unless you're an adult over a certain age, but you can kill how many thousands of people you want yeah, you in, a, in a Marvel movie and you get PG-13. Yeah. 
So knowing that's the circumstances, how does this movie get to an audience? I mean, I would love my kids. They're 22 and 18. Mm. I, would, I think this is a movie that 16-year-old yeah. girls need to see. It's interesting. I was in a film seminar earlier, and it was so nice. So um, these students from the AFI, and someone said, I was... I just was watching it and wishing I'd seen it when I was 16. And I think that's also something I felt when I read the script was like, I've never seen this. And God, I feel like this is stuff I'm still discovering about myself because it's never been a discourse in society. It's never been something I've been able to see. And yeah, I, I don't know. It's, I would say, yeah, if you're a parent listening to this, show your kids because it, it's it's good. It's It's, yeah, it's positive. That was Emma Corrin, the star of Lady Chatterley's Lover, which premiered at Telluride. It will be in theaters in December. Coming up after the break, a look ahead to the Emmy Awards. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Finally, here's my weekly entertainment news chat with KPCC Morning Edition host, Suzanne Watley. This week, we talked about the upcoming Emmy Awards and the latest news on movie theaters' continuing struggles to stay afloat. Here's my conversation with Suzanne. We are talking about the Primetime Emmy Awards, which are coming up Monday. Not the usual Sunday night because the host network, NBC, for some reason, wants to show, uh, I think, like NFL football Sunday night or football. Something. Come on. I don't Sudan. know. But it's, okay. They've made their choice. There's a but, certain audience that wants to see that, and it includes me. <laughs> <laughs> but I believe that you want to start our Emmys chat with a look at last year's show. Do I ever. So first, I'm going to make an elementary school comparison. I went to a very... Very good and very progressive middle school right here in Pasadena, not far from our studios. It's still here going strong. It's called the Sequoia School, and it isn't the kind of school that gives out letter grades or says a student's classroom work is failing or unsatisfactory. Instead, you get the kinder and gentler comment, needs improvement. And I think that's the nicest way to say what Emmy voters needed to. So a year ago, each and every of the 12 Emmy acting trophies, so that's lead and supporting actor and actress in drama, comedy, and limited series, went to a white nominee. And all of the top four series winners were anchored by white performers or ensembles. You had The Crown for drama series, Ted Lasso for comedy series, Queen's Gambit for limited series, and Last Week Tonight with John Oliver for variety talk series. So, like I might have been told more than once when I was at the Sequoia School, the Emmys need improvement. Indeed. What else could happen on Monday? Well, in the primetime ceremony, there's one category that really could reveal whether or not Emmy voters are not just doing the same old, same old, and that's the trophy for comedy series. Last year, it went to Ted Lasso, and this year, the soccer show might lose to Abbott Elementary, which is led by a black cast. And while a lot of people like and watch the Korean drama series Squid Game, the likely winner in that category is Succession, and the favorite for Best Limited Series is The White Lotus, which is, well, white. That said, <laughs> several actors in Squid Game could win Emmys, as could Zendaya, who has the lead actress drama nomination for Euphoria. 
All right. So the Primetime Emmys are coming up Monday night, September 12th, 5 o'clock our time. I want to switch topics for a moment while I still have you here. Um, John, I recall you've said for a while that all the talk about the box office being back and moviegoers returning to theaters has been, well, just talk. Any news on that front? Yeah. Cineworld, which is a UK company that owns the massive Regal chain here in the United States, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy on Wednesday. Ah, they the, did it. Uh. They did. They finally. And the company says it hopes to come out of reorganization early next year, which will entail, and I'm quoting them now, a real estate optimization strategy in the United States. The way I read that, it means closing a whole lot of screens or selling a whole lot of real estate or trying to re- renegotiate uh, leases. It's, you know, the company has nearly $5 billion in debt and revenue is a fraction of what it was pre pandemic. So, to use a popcorn analogy, there might be a kernel of a chance that they survive. <laughs> but let's see, I am not expecting a Hollywood ending to this story. And AMC is also in trouble. They have benefited from meme stock uh, spec- speculation, but I think it's really going to be grim for the next couple of years for exhibitors. AMC, aren't they investing in gold mines now? They're doing whatever they can do to, to make it through. But again, attendance continues to drift down, and it doesn't look like it's going to turn around anytime soon. Well, we had uh, National Cinema Day this past Saturday, $3 movie tickets, uh, coast to coast. Yeah, and millions and millions of people showed up. So it proves the point that if you make movies three or four dollars, people will turn out. If they're twelve or fourteen dollars, I mean I go to the Alamo, it's fifteen dollars or the iPick, God knows how much that cost. God knows how much the iPick costs. But yeah, movies are clearly out of price right now. So people will watch streaming and if a movie can cost three dollars, they'll go see it. But if it's more than that, they'll stay at home. Hmm. Well, something will have to be done uh, in, in order for the, the whole theater-going experience to survive and survive on a level that is affordable for people to take their families uh, and get that popcorn. Exactly. A kernel of truth in that statement. Thanks for listening to Retake. We'll see you again next week. I'm John Horn. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino and Monica Bushman. The editor is Suzanne Levy. The associate producer is Sabir Brava. And special thanks this week to engineer Hasmik Pogosian. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.